Welcome to episode number three of Stand Up Citizen. This episode will be about the rule of law, mainly about the Constitution, not the actual words and phrases so much as the environment in which it was created by our founders. Uh, So what does it mean when we say something is unconstitutional? It means that it's contrary to the supreme law of the land, which is the U.S. Constitution. But also it means in the larger sense that it violates the rule of law, one of the basic foundations of our republic and all republics. The rule of law is best understood as contrary to the rule of one or the rule of a few who could enact policies that were according to their interests and preferences uh, and would ignore those of the people. So think kings, monarchs, dictators, and oligarchies. Aristotle told us that law is reason without passion. And our founders set forth to create a republic that is based on the rule of law and to write a constitution that would embody those principles as well as create a structure for government that would work for a what they thought of as a future continental nation. So let's consult Federalist Paper 1 to set the question out clearly. And this was written by Alexander Hamilton before he became a star on Broadway. Our challenge is, quote, to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. So there you have the basic question that drove the efforts of the members of the Constitutional Convention, who had to, after all, create a nation. So there's a famous book by Catherine Bowen about the Constitution called The Miracle at Philadelphia. And it provides really great insight into the making of the Constitution. But I really don't think about the Constitution as a miracle, but instead as a mere, very remarkable achievement. The great debate that followed the convention before the Constitution could be ratified should remind us sign of the document and it came out of the Constitutional Convention was not universally supported, even by patriots like Patrick Henry, Sam Adams, and John Hancock. We'll take up that close call debate in a future episode. So Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady of British politics, is famously quoted as saying, America was created by philosophy, while Europe was created by history. And yes, America was created by an idea, that is the ideas of the Enlightenment. So why call a constitutional convention? After all, there was a constitution in effect, namely the Articles of Confederation. Well, it was a weak government, It didn't have powers to tax. It had to rely on the states for money, for military support, and had uh, a weak executive and a single 
legislature, the single house of uh, legislature. So when Shays' rebellion happened in 1786 and the new government had difficulty putting it down, many of our founders decided that it was time that the articles be revised and improved. So a convention was called. Most of the convention delegates were instructed to go to Philadelphia and make an improvement, a revision, um, an alteration of the Articles of Confederation. None of them were told to actually create an entirely new document and an entirely new governmental structure. Alexander Hamilton, however, came with an agenda, and we'll see where that went. Remember that the president of the Constitutional Convention was going to be George Washington, the most revered, the most respected American. He was actually even widely respected around the world. Um, Even George III said he might be the greatest man in the world at that time. He wants a strong central government, national government, and Hamilton's idea is to put in place something that has more muscle behind it. So what was the risk of not revising the articles? Well, there were armed Tories, that is, armed loyalists to the British crown who had lost out in the revolution. The new government had failed so far to stick to the treaty um, agreements made in the Peace of Paris of 1783. And some of those had to do with giving Tories back their land or compensating them for land they lost by supporting the king. There were hostile Indians, uh, many of which had supported the British during the revolution. And there were hostile powers on all of the borders, particularly the British and the Spanish, who might try and and, uh, take advantage of the new weak American government. Now, Washington and Hamilton were very close. Hamilton had been Washington's principal aide during the American Revolution, almost like a son to Washington, who had no children of his own. The government had no army or navy to speak of, and this is evident in the early Federalist Papers that we'll learn about later, which makes a national security argument. Namely, if we don't revise this government, if we don't create a a stronger structure, we won't be safe. We must combine into a true national government instead of a confederation of states. The continuing risks from great powers like Spain and Britain and others potentially was too great not to take steps to make a newer, stronger governmental structure. So who were these people, these delegates to the Constitutional Convention who met beginning in May of 1787, beginning of what would be a very hot summer, sitting in a closed room with the shades drawn, with no air conditioning, and heavy wool suits on. Well, 55 delegates came throughout the the summer, not all of them sitting in the room at any one time. 39 of the delegates signed the Constitution, But some luminaries did not, such as George Mason, who was a very influential Virginian and the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Their average age was about 42, 
and that included the 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, as well as 26-year-old Jonathan Dayton. Many were well-educated, some were not, but they were all very well-read. As a matter of fact, they were some of the best customers of London bookstores, and what they read was law, philosophy, and history. John Adams was not at the convention. He was in Britain serving as the minister to the British government. Jefferson was not there. He was in France, very happily, uh, as the minister to France. Adams had written extensively on constitutional issues and was actually the principal drafter of the Massachusetts Constitution, some of whose elements will appear in the U.S. Constitution. Jefferson, of course, was the very influential principal author of the Declaration of Independence, about which we already talked. So what principles did they rely on? What guidance did they receive? They relied on the English, Scottish, and French Enlightenment principles. This was the prevailing conversation among intellectuals in the Western world, uh, which influenced the whole idea that people were rational and able to think for themselves and therefore govern themselves under the right structure and under the right circumstances. And don't forget, they were only six generations since the pilgrims had landed, so they weren't that far away from the religious principles and influence that brought people to North America in the first place. So what were they reading? They were reading things like Addison's Cato, the famous play by Joseph Addison about the Roman who resisted the dictatorship of Julius Caesar. Actually, George Washington during Valley Forge had Addison's Cato presented to the troops several times to inspire them that they had to resist tyranny. They were uh, reading historians, histories of Rome, histories of Greece, the Renaissance republics, and they were reading Baron Montesquieu. Montesquieu had written The Spirit of the Laws in 1748, where he wrote an analysis of different types of governments. And the conclusion he came to was that in a monarchy, what had to be cultivated among the people was honor. In a despotism, what needed to be cultivated among the people was fear. But under a republic, what needed to be cultivated most of all was a virtue, public virtue, civic virtue. Spirit of the Laws was very influential on our founders who were trying to use what they called political science to structure a government that worked. On this issue of virtue, Madison once wrote, quote, is there no virtue among us? If not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. Their sense of virtue meant you put aside your personal interests and differences if it was for the good of the entire community, or, the, or in, the, in this case, the country. So was it a wish on the part of our founders? Was it naive? So if they studied history, what kind of history did they study most? They wanted most of all to know the reasons for republics which had failed in the past. Because after all, Athens, the great Athens of the golden age of Greece, had failed and fallen into tyranny. Rome had 
the famous Roman Republic had fallen and the empire had taken over. The republics of Florence, especially uh, in the Renaissance, had fallen to factionalism and to invasion by the French in particular. And they concluded that factions had been the reason for the downfall of these great republics of the past, that the principal challenge and principal problem they had to solve with the Constitution was to deal with the problem of faction and the tendency of factions to try and use their influence to take away freedoms or assert their interests in, at the expense of other groups. This whole issue of study of history and understanding of virtue doesn't appear to be taught in our schools anymore. And Richard Haas, the foreign policy expert, recently wrote, our schools no longer teach civics. Americans coming of age have not been exposed to a common national narrative about our historic political DNA or what makes us, us. In another time, someone said, the sleep of reason brings forth monsters. The lack of civics and the study of history today would surprise and alarm our founders. I remember seeing recently an advertisement for a, a for-profit college that noted, at this school, you don't have to take any of those useless electives, such as history and English. That would really give our founders a lot of heartburn. We don't do anything, after all, without consulting the past. And our founders knew that. My years in business and in teaching revealed to me a lack of civics and a lack of understanding of history. And I submit to you that STEM education isn't enough, especially in a republic where people are supposed to be self-governing and electing their own representatives and making sound decisions on who and what our government carries out. Maybe in China it's okay. But China is not a republic. China is a dictatorship. So what assumptions did the founders make? Well, one assumption they made, following up on the recent point I made, is the need for an educated citizenry, an informed citizen, autonomy, the ability to think for yourself and to be self-governing and not just to merely follow what other people say you should do. They knew that factions were inevitable, and they knew that it would take real effort to control factions by on part of the citizens. Quote, the latent causes of faction are sown into the nature of man. The inference to which we are brought is that the causes of faction cannot be removed, and that relief is only to be sought in the means of controlling its effects. James Madison in the very important Federalist Paper Number 10. Hamilton and Madison believed that that would, that would be accomplished, dealing with faction, by diversity of interests, not a commonality of interests. A diversity of interests where the ambition of one faction would be counteracted by the interests of another. Ambition will counteract ambition. You see, these are practical men. They thought a lot about human psychology. They were very much aware of human strengths and frailties, and they had lots of examples in history. They did not 
tried to create a perfect structure. They did not use ideal philosophy, but were aware that to create a country, they had to be practical, and some compromises were necessary. They also knew that constitutional principles would be aspirational and would take time to reach, quote, a more perfect union, unquote, from our famous preamble. When in the course of human events comes from the Declaration of Independence, we the people of the United States comes from the Constitution. They didn't make the mistake of the French who, when they set out with their French Revolution, when they cleaned the table of all prior authorities, tested people on the purity of their adherence to the principles laid out by the revolution. And of course, that led to about a quarter of a million deaths. Instead, our founders relied on civic virtue and good faith of a good Republican citizenry to guide future development. So what were Washington's rules at the convention? First of all, having Washington as president of the convention had a lot to do with the success of ratification later. Well, he said, no, there will be no press. There'll be no discussion outside the room. The meetings will be held in secret. No notes were to be taken from the room. And he enforced this with his inherent authority earned during the American Revolution. We know pretty much what happened at the convention in spite of its secrecy because James Madison took copious notes and recorded the deliberations of the delegates, which actually point out items and issues of controversy that would come up later in the ratification debate. According to Professor Daniel Robinson, Thomas Jefferson considered the notes that Madison took a miracle since he was able to fully participate and faithfully record the views of all other participants. For example, if you want to know what the founders debated during the convention on the issue of impeachment, go to Madison's Notes, September 8th, 1787. Looking at the Constitution, don't look at it in pieces as a series of discrete, unconnected rules. Think of it as a whole document that is put together as with interconnected and supporting parts. For example, the President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States when called into actual service. The President is not Commander-in-Chief of the country. Congress calls the Armed Forces into service because Congress has the exclusive power to declare war and to take other limited military action. So it's a design of many parts working together for the practical purpose of giving structure and rules for a functioning government. So we the people, right out of the declaration, as I said, we the people, with consent of the governed, sovereignty is in the person. Remember that all political power derives from the citizens. I recently saw H.R. McMaster, the retired Lieutenant General on C-SPAN, where he said in discussing the military's role that Sovereignty resides with the people who elect the Congress to pass laws and provide oversight to make sure that the laws are being, to make sure that laws are faithfully executed. The will of the people, the ultimate sovereign in a republic that is embodied in its laws, 
So in going about writing the Constitution, the founders had to decide, well, what kind of Constitution do we write? How do we limit ourselves? Do we write down everything? Do we write down rules? Do we have a some kind of guide, some kind of format? Of course, they could refer to Adams' uh, Massachusetts Constitution. So Edmund Randolph, a Virginia delegate, suggested to the Committee of Detail, that was the committee that was going to write the Constitution, when drafting the Constitution, two things deserve attention. One, to insert essential principles only, lest the operations of government should be clogged by rendering provisions permanent and unalterable instead of being accommodated to times and events. And two, to use simple and precise language and general propositions according to the example of the constitutions of the several states. He believed this because he would rely upon good faith and civic virtue in public men who became the stewards of the republic throughout the future, and that they would develop norms which were consistent with the founding principles. They wanted to make this foundational document a set of rules that was flexible to adapt to future changes and would succeed as the world progressed. So the main provisions and structure are simply stated. Congress, of course, in Article 1, acquires its authority from the people. Laws are created by the legislative branch, and the representatives derive their authority from the people. Recall the consent of the governed in the Declaration. Recall of the people, by the people, for the people, of Abraham Lincoln. A government of laws, not men. That's a republic. A government that can turn moral principles into law, sometimes principles that existed prior to the Constitution. So the Congress in Article I, its powers are laid out uh, a number of clauses. They have the power to tax, to declare war, to coin and borrow money, but you've read them all. So Madison gives us the best definition of the role of Congress. They're supposed to make cool, not accompanied by jazz music, cool, temperate, virtuous decisions, quote, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of the country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice the country's interest to temporary or partial considerations. So they don't just follow the orders of the people they represent, but they balance their constituents' interests with the national issues and the good of the country. The eminent conservative Edmund Burke believed a representative's role was to exercise mature judgment and represent the interests of the entire nation. And they were to mediate issues that were difficult and not incite the public into a mob as they knew that was could be a really real problem. So when a particular political party starts to strut and fume against a bill that they don't like, uh, that's their right as the loyal opposition. But some of the time the objections are founded on concerns that cause the people to rise up and become dangerous even. Madison, in particular, was concerned about the potential for, for mobs. Article 2, the authority of the president, 
and keep in mind the founder's concern over a dictator. The president must follow the law and has no authority to make laws or to give them meaning Congress did not intend. He shall take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The president's oath of office makes the president's job to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution versus the rule of one person or few people. That's our solution to threats to individual freedoms. To preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution means to uphold the rule of law and the individual laws and norms that constitute our political life. The oath doesn't say to preserve, protect, and defend the country. That's possible to do and still undermine the Constitution. It doesn't say to preserve and protect the presidency. Throughout history, that has been a problem with bad leaders and abuse and unfortunate consequences. The oath to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution is a solemn promise, a binding commitment, honor involved to protect the rule of law. If the president thinks some, something needs to be changed or improved, there's process in place to effect changes in concert with the other co-equal branches, but not unilaterally. That's what tyrants do. Jefferson wrote, in questions of power, then, let no more be heard of confidence in men, but bind them down from mischief by the chains of a constitution. The founders also worried about the influence of foreign powers over what they call the chief magistrate. Federalist 68 expresses concern over, quote, the desire of foreign powers to gain improper ascendancy in our councils by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistracy of the union. So on the issue of impeachment, since it's much in the news, Founders believe that impeachment should apply to the misconduct of public men from the abuse or violation of some public trust. High crimes and misdemeanors are, quote, political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. Impeachment is a political solution to violations of the public trust, not a criminal solution. Article 3 is the judiciary. Congress makes laws, the president takes care they are faithfully executed, courts determine if a law or action violates the Constitution. The court is, in a crude analogy maybe, the umpire who is alert to someone who wants four strikes, four outs, and second base on a single. Federal judges are appointed during good behavior, meaning for life, so that they can be nonpartisan. By the way, electing judge would seem strange to Hamilton and his fellow framers. So what were their worries? They worried that one branch would be too strong. And one reason that they split the Congress into the House and Senate. They were concerned about two branches combining against the third. And they put in place different ways for constitutional officers to be elected in order to be a check on two of the branches combining. They didn't anticipate the impact of political parties when they designed the Electoral College. They assumed the delegates to the Electoral College would make their choices based on their own counsel and on virtue. Checks and balances. We've heard a lot about separation of powers during our education and on the TV. John Adams, in all of his writings, insisted on checks and balances, what we now call separation of powers. It's basically healthy competition 
among the, the three branches, and the branches had to overlap and cooperate uh, in some ways. So, for example, when the president nominates a Supreme Court justice, the Senate must approve that nomination. Or Congress passes a, a law, the president vetoes the law, or the judges can de declare the law un unconstitutional. But faction was, again, something that they were very concerned about. They concluded that all great republics had been brought down by faction, and they wanted to counteract the effects of faction while preserving individual rights. Patrick Henry, in his very last speech, said, let us trust God and our better judgment to set us right hereafter. United we stand, divided we fall. Let us not split into factions which must destroy that union upon which our existence hangs. Adam Smith, the patron saint of capitalism, said about faction, quote, of all the corruptors of moral sentiments, faction and fanaticism have always been by far the greatest. Dennis Diderot, one of the French Enlightenment people of great influence, said, it is but one step from fanaticism to barbarism. More about faction in our next episode. The problem of representation what big states versus small states and who would have ascendancy was resolved by the Connecticut Compromise proposed by Roger Sherman, for the only man who signed all four founding documents. Jefferson called him the, the judicious Mr. Sherman who never said a foolish thing. Slavery. Why didn't they take care of slavery? They needed the support of the Southern delegates who were slaveholders. Simply stated, they couldn't get a nation put together under a new constitution if they tried to abolish slavery uh, at that point. What they did do is prohibit the importation of slavery after the year 1808. So, no Bill of Rights. There is no Bill of Rights in the original constitution. Some ancient rights were inserted, like habeas corpus. Alexander Hamilton argued against the Bill of Rights, saying that if you enumerate the rights, then if you don't put one on the list, then someone in the future, unscrupulous leader of government, will say, well, it's not on the list, so the government can take those rights away. In fact, natural rights existed before the government, so they neither can be granted nor taken away by the government. James Wilson, an early Justice of the Supreme Court said, the Constitution does not create new rights, but it secures and enlarges rights we already possess by nature. If the Constitution were to go away today, we would still have all of our natural rights. But the ratification debate would show clearly that the sentiment in favor of a Bill of Rights was strong. George Mason of Virginia did not sign the Constitution mainly because there was no Bill of Rights. When James Madison was accused of making an imperfect document. Madison said, we did not create a perfect document because we are not perfect. And some people making that judgment were referring to the continuing existence of the vile institution of slavery. So after the convention was over, Franklin was approached by a citizen who asked him, what kind of government have you given us? Franklin said, quote, a republic if you can keep it. That was his challenge to future citizens, that the new government structure would require work and inform citizens and good faith. 
When the Constitution was made public, people reacted very, very alarmed way. And within the first 10 days after publication, the first essay criticizing in opposition to the Constitution was published. Thus began the debate over ratification that may be the high point of the entire founding period and is still a source of guidance to us all.